Greetings, listeners near and far, and welcome to Movie Night, here on WOMR 92.1 and WFMR 91.3. I'm Harry Kaysen, your Movie Night, K-N-I-G-H-T, a defender of the realm of movies, as it were. I've been a writer, director, and actor who has spent his career in Hollywood, though now here I am, happily residing here in gorgeous Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It's October. And the leaves are starting to turn, fall is in the air. It's a great time to cozy up in front of a movie. And I've got four new movies that just might fit your bill. This show, Movie Night, is a film review show, as you no doubt can tell. And here are the titles I'll be offering today. They are Kelsey and Ordinary Men, The Hidden Holocaust, and The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, and the one film this month that's my favorite, You return listeners know I like to keep that title secret until the end to hopefully keep you tuned in and guessing. My opinions are mine and mine alone, and though I'm not a Canadian, (laughs) I won't be handing out negative reviews for the simple reason I know firsthand how challenging it can be to bring a film to life, and I'm here to praise the recent works I'm most fond of. Our first film is Kelsey. That's spelled K-E-L-C-E. It's a documentary. And it was directed by Don Argot and produced by Mr. Argot, Sheena M. Joyce, and Larry Platt. It stars Jason Kelsey, his wife Kylie Kelsey, his brother Travis Kelsey, their parents, and a whole raft of NFL players. Like I said, this is a documentary, and it centers on a year in the life of Jason Kelsey, who plays for the Philadelphia Eagles as their star center. Since Jason was considering this year to be his last in his 15 years in the NFL, He had a film crew follow him around all year, as his last season in the pros plays itself out. It just so happens this last year turns out to be a phenomenal one for Jason. Now, I'm not a huge football guy. I can watch, I can enjoy, but I don't paint my face or consider football to be appointment television. But I was mesmerized by this film nonetheless. Jason Kelsey comes off as a very down-to-earth and very likable giant teddy bear of a guy, and he's faced with a dilemma. He's a husband and father of little girls, and at 35, he's racked with constant pain and worries for the future. Can he really face another season after this one? Sure, there's money, big money, and there's glory, of course. His Philly fans absolutely love him, as we'll see. But he could be looking at the rest of his life, from 35 onward, being close to a complete cripple, or worse, with CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. That's when your brain has been hit so hard, so many times, it goes to pieces, sometimes even causing dementia. It's not uncommon in NFL players, sad to say. In the meantime, Jason just wants to get through the current season and do his best, just like his brother Travis, who is a running back for the Kansas City Chiefs and a superstar in his own right. The question is, will it actually happen this season that brother will play against brother in the Super Bowl? That's an occurrence that's never taken place. We follow both brothers, Jason and Travis, and their parents, who are heroes in their own right. Their biggest concern, if the Eagles and the Chiefs play each other in the Super Bowl, who will they root for? (laughs) That's a sports parent problem we should all have. Now, even non-sports people have to admit NFL football is hip-deep in pageantry. And there's plenty of that here, but there's also a lot of heart. Miles and miles of it. Two brothers heading towards a sports destiny with their loving families by their side. And Jason's cheerfully pregnant wife 
possibly going into labor during a big game. <laughs> and as I make this recording, breaking news here on Movie Night, the very lovely Taylor Swift is rumored to be in a relationship with the very lovely Travis Kelsey. Wow. Look for the movie soon in a multiplex near you. And who says America doesn't have royalty? The next film is titled Ordinary Men, The Hidden Holocaust. It's a documentary directed by Manfred Oldenburg and Oliver Halmberger, and it was written by Manfred Oldenburg. It's narrated by Brian Cox, and it features the real-life American prosecuting attorney, Benjamin Ferenc, one of the heads of the Allied war crime trials that took place after World War II. This film is in English, though it was made by Germans in Germany. It's a serious film, quite unlike others I'm reviewing this month or even this year. It uses historical footage, along with academic interviews and select reenactments, to tell how it happened that, quote-unquote, ordinary men could be involved in mass murder. This is not the concentration camp story of sadistic guards and hellish conditions. This is the tragically true story of German policemen, not soldiers, who were sent out as squads day after day under orders to execute people at rifle point, often at point-blank range, people who were determined unacceptable by the Reich. No trial, no jury, no nothing. And they executed two million of these innocents. It's a previously untold story, hence the title, The Hidden Holocaust. Yes, the inhuman horrors of World War II have been covered before, of course, but this short film, in one hour, does its best to cast some non-hysterical light on how husbands and fathers, ordinary men, who went home to their families every night, could have been convinced what they were doing was in any way acceptable by moral standards known to man. And Benjamin Ferenc, the American prosecutor of some of the commanding officers of these ordinary men, does his best to explain how puzzlingly normal they seemed. Educated, cultured, dignified. How could this happen? The answer this movie reaches for is, I feel, important for reasons that transcend the Holocaust. As this essential film shows, the kind of switch-flipping within one's conscience, for lack of a better term, is not uniquely German or uniquely connected to World War II. Monstrous behavior can rear its ugly head anywhere, anytime. In Cambodia, in Rwanda, and Kosovo, it's being attempted right now in the Ukraine. Dare I say it even happened here many years ago against our own indigenous people? This movie quietly and convincingly reveals that so long as there is a way to persuade ordinary men that the opposing group isn't worthy of sheer human decency, unspeakable actions can be twisted into a term referred to as duty. It's the ultimate polarization. My friends, my family have asked me in the past, do we really need another movie about the Holocaust? My answer simply would be yes. True, it won't help the victims, but it might just help the victims yet to come. The next film is a world away from the last one. It is titled The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. It was directed and produced by Wes Anderson and was adapted by Mr. Anderson from the short story by Roald Dahl. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Ray Fiennes, Ben Kingsley, Dev Patel, and Richard Ayoade. This is the second Wes Anderson film I'm reviewing in as many months, 
It's a standalone, as opposed to the short piece that precluded Darjeeling Express. And like that curiosity, it's a very short film, only a scant 39 minutes. Okay, where to begin? It's a pretty basic tale of a quest. A quest that starts out with a spoiled, self-important man hoping to make himself even more important. Oh, wait, that's the Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, no, that's Darjeeling Express. Oh, no, it's the World Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Oh, do we see a pattern here? Wes Anderson likes this theme. He also likes stagecraft, which this delightful little film is chock-a-block with. Staircases and doorways that fly like bats, tons of miniatures and puppets, actors playing multiple roles in multiple disguises. As I stated in my review for Asteroid City, this film, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, is a kid's pop-up book of a movie. You may be puzzled by it, you may wonder why it was ever made, but if you were ever to put on a Christmas pageant for your friends and family and wanted it brimming over with charm and inventiveness, you would want Wes Anderson to direct it. Trust me. The Misters Cumberbatch, Fines, and Kingsley give it their all here and are obviously quite happy to do so. On a historical note, Roald Dahl, the famous writer of the original story here, was accused by other writers of always having a sad or negative ending to his tales, and he went out of his way on this one to write a happy ending. So, is there a happy ending? Yes. Do we see it coming? see for yourself. My advice, just sit back for 39 minutes, cup of cocoa in hand, and enjoy this noon-in-a-cuckoo-clock store of a movie. It's one of a kind, though I'm willing to believe Mr. Anderson has several more in mind. At least I hope so. And now for my guest this month. She is Amy Carlson, a very talented working actor, And while most of my actor friends are based in L.A., she is based in New York City. Her many credits include Blue Bloods, Law & Order, Another World, NCIS, and the movie I was fortunate enough to direct her in, A Midsummer's Hawaiian Dream. She's also appeared in many other titles. Her partner of almost 20 years is Sid Butler, the bass player on Seth Meyers' Late Night Show. So she's show business through and through. Besides all that, she's whip-smart, charming, and absolutely gorgeous with crystal blue eyes that can stop you in your tracks. (laughs) My friend and esteemed colleague, Amy Carlson. Hi, so I'm here with my friend, Amy Carlson. Hi, Amy. Hi. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm good. And you're in New York City right now? I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Yep. Brooklyn, New York. Great. Uh, Basically, I just want to, you know, let... uh, the listeners out there know what it's like to be a working actor and what uh, what that world is like. I've had a few actors on the show before, including uh, our friend Charles Shaughnessy, and uh, I just kind of want to see what the, the what your point of view is and how the strike's been affecting you and what your world is like right now. Right. Uh, well, the strike has affected everything. Everything. Uh, so, I mean, it's right now. It's what it, this could be a show about what it's like to be a, a, a striking actor, <laughs> but. Um, which is funny though, because we pivoted to plays, and so I've been meeting with some directors about doing a play, which is interesting because I have not uh, really had the opportunity or the time to do a play in a long time. So, but now it looks like we're going to go off strike, so we'll see what happens with that. Sure, that's great. Uh, and you do a play in New York? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I would do a play in other places too, but I have 
kids in high school, so I like to keep it a little bit close to home. Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, yeah. Is it is it a drama? Is it a comedy? Uh, drama. I know I know very little about your your past. Did you go to school for acting? Was that anything you did? I went to school and I was an East Asian history major at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. So I did that first, but I I was on stage constantly at this small liberal arts college. Sure. Why why weren't you why were you doing that major and not a theater major? I was just I'm fascinated and it kind of I was a theater concentration. They they really didn't have like a minor there, but I love history and I love stories, which is kind of why I became an actor was to tell stories. And so really for me, it's all about teachers. And I was really, uh, um, I adored this, this teacher, Miki Sohani, who was uh, um, the East Asian history teacher so much that I just couldn't get out of his class. And then I ended up looking at my credits in the end and just, well, I, well, it was obvious that I was a history major. <laughs> oh, sure. It wasn't really a plan. It was a it was a happenstance. Right, and uh, you went on to uh, another world. Was that right after college? No, first I did. I worked in college. In after college, I worked. And well, when I was in college, I did an urban studies program, which was really fun. And I went to Chicago, which is. Um, instead of going to Europe, which I had already done, I was like, I'll go to Chicago and just really try to figure out how to be an actor when I get out of college because the liberal arts college education is not really focused. It's not pre-professional at all. So I had no idea really how to do that. So I was an intern at the Gettys Agency for my internship during the urban studies program, which was fascinating. We talked about... Um, all kinds of urban issues and segregation in Chicago cities. And it was one of the most fascinating times. And then in addition, I got to intern at this agency. And through doing that, I understood how I was going to get an agent and how I was going to proceed once I was out of college. And I also went to Chicago and I studied with um, the Improv Olympic and I studied with uh, the Chicago, the Actors Studio in Chicago. Uh, I think it's actually called the Actors Center. It wasn't the Actors Studio, but uh, with Eileen Borbach and Victor Del Torrio, and I studied a lot of acting with them. Um, and then, yeah, and then I got an agent who had just come from New York, and he um, suggested me for the soap opera. So I was like, sure, I'll go to New York. And so they flew me out to New York and tested, and I got the job. I was so broke at the time when I flew out to New York for the test that I, I was auditioning in clothes from Marshall Fields, which is a department store in Chicago, sure. that I had the tags tucked into the skirt and the sweater because <laughs> I was like, I have to return this stuff when I get home. <laughs> but yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Talk about rags to riches. That's great. <laughs> how long were you on, How long were you on that show? I stayed for a contract uh, and then a little bit. After that, I moved to Los Angeles. Okay, sure. Yeah. I've, uh, yeah, I've had uh, three other actors on this program over the months, and every single one of them has been on soap operas. I was on Days of Our Lives myself many years ago. What was your oh, What was your experience like on the soap? Was it pleasant? Was it what? Pleasant. Um, it was as dramatic as the television stories we were telling <laughs> <laughs> it was 
it was like that movie Soap Dish on steroids. Oh my God, really? Oh yeah, so much drama behind the scenes. You know, not all the time, but sure. it's pretty dramatic. There was a lot of there was a lot of divas um, and uh, a lot of uh, hierarchy in the soaps. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I was at the bottom of the totem pole. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I remember oh, everybody well. around me just desperate to get off the soap. Now that they'd gotten the soap, they were terrified they were going to be there the rest of their lives. Right. Not, not, this show didn't have that. I was on another world. And in fact, I actually, um, the divas were not the most, the men were the most diverse divas on my show. <laughs> but um, not the women, because the women I'm so really close with. And yeah, no, they were really, they were really happy with their jobs and enjoying their life on a soap opera living in New York. Uh, and it was, it was a little bit different, but I'm sure it's different in California because New York soap operas were different than California soap operas. How so? Well, I imagine if you're on a California soap, like you said, people were like, oh, there's so much work around. But uh, in soap operas in New York, it allowed the actors to live in New York and send their, you know, be moms and fathers to their children and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, take time off to do movies or whatever if need be. And it was kind of chilled out atmosphere in that way. Sure. Now, uh, talk to me about Blue Bloods. How did you get that job? I got Blue Bloods, that was after I'd been doing series television for a long time. I, when I went out to LA, I did, I, when I first went out to LA, I got a job on a CBS show and I did a lot of different series. I did a series in Toronto called Falcone and then I went back to New York and I did a series called Third Watch and then I went to Vancouver and I did a series called Peacemakers and then I went to LA, I think, for a little bit and did like different. Oh, then I did Law and Order Trial by Jury, mm-hmm. which is the fourth incantation of Law and Order. And I did some movies and, and here and there in between. And then I had kids. Yeah. And yeah. after I had a daughter, and then I did some some guest stints here and there when I had my daughter. And then I had my, uh, my son, and I was in LA. And I went out there for pilot season, and we were living in this little rental bungalow, like a one-floor bungalow, tiny little, like, guest room in the back of this house. And I was auditioning, 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 and I was like, we got to go home. Let's go home to New York. This is just, I've, I've had it with LA. Let's go back to New York. I'm tired of this. And just because pilot season back then was, like, a real slog of rejection. (laughs) And so like my last audition, I went and auditioned for the same casting directors who had cast me on Third Watch. Um, And they cast me, it was like, uh, I was already packing up to go home and I said I went to Toronto and shot the pilot for Blue Bloods. So I've asked this of other of uh, the actors that I've interviewed uh, about the classes you've had, the teachers you've had. Um, can you think of the worst advice you were ever given? The worst advice. Yeah. The worst advice. Probably the worst advice I was given was to just not try. <laughs> <laughs> do something else, do anything else. That's probably the worst advice. Somebody actually said that to you. Yes, my dad. Oh. <laughs> Which gave me extra, uh, extra reason to. He was just worried about me, you know. Like, but uh, yeah, he wanted me to do anything else, mm. and I was like, I'm gonna do this. Now that you've said that, now I'm really gonna do it. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's funny. And uh, how did you meet your husband? He, I met him at Saturday Night Live. So I was, uh, I used to go before 9-11, you could just sneak into 30 Rock. And uh, a lot of my friends who were camera operators, boom operators, makeup artists, um, et cetera, on Another World, the soap I was doing, on the weekends they go and they do makeup and um, you know the cameras and stuff for Saturday Night Live. So I would just go and visit them, mm-hmm. just kind of wave my way in, and then I would stand on the and the sides and watch the show from the you know being chased by security out of the corners. And I, uh, at that time, it was the series end, and I was bringing my friend um, who happens to be my husband's sister. Uh, I met her, um, well, we, were, we didn't know each other that well, but I said, let's go to Saturday Night Live series finale. And she says, oh, can I bring my brother? And I was like, ugh, fine. <laughs> and that was kind of that. And I met him and we hung out at the SNL party and we got along really well. And then shortly after that, we started dating. And you're a musician too, aren't you? Kind of. I've been very much surpassed by, um, well, obviously him, but, um, my children now are like where I focus most of my musical skill. Good. They've surpassed me. My son just started playing the accordion after playing the cello and the trumpet and the piano. Wow. He's adding the accordion to his repertoire, which is bananas. You guys can be like the Partridge family. Exactly. Yeah, because my daughter is a beautiful singer and she plays violin and piano also. Oh she God. can pick up anything, though. She played bass in the show and she played mandolin. She just plays everything. Wow. Have, have they uh, voiced any interest in being actors, either of your kids? Oh, please. Unfortunately, yes. They go, to a, <laughs> they go to a theater camp called Stage Door Manor, which is in the Catskills, and it's just all they do is theater, and they love it. In fact, they, today the cast list is being posted oh for the fall show at their school, so we'll oh see what happens. Oh Actually, now having said that, I feel nervous for them. <laughs> If you want to watch Sid, my husband, playing bass in the Seth Meyers show, they are starting back today, um, October 2nd, on NBC. And tune in and you can check out their fresh look at all the wild current events we're living through. Wonderful. Great. All right, Amy, thank you so very much for your time and your energy. And uh, it's just a delight to talk to you. I hope things go well. I hope you do start a Partridge Family show. I'd love to see that. Oh my goodness. I don't that just make me play the trampoline. Take care. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for my favorite film this month, and its title is A Million Miles Away. It was directed by Alejandra Marquez Abea, and it was written by Ms. Abea and Bettina Gilois and Hernan Jimenez. It stars Michael Pena, Rosa Salazar, Julio Cesar Cedillo, and Garrett Dillahunt. This is a true story of a Mexican migrant farmworker boy who grew up to be an American astronaut. It's that straightforward, and it's based on the book written by the astronaut himself, Jose Hernandez. There's a wonderful authenticity here, no doubt based on the fact many of the people responsible for this movie are Hispanic and obviously proud of it. Those of you familiar with the Mexican culture, or indeed almost all Latin cultures, know how important family is in that world. Growing up in Southern California as I did, I was exposed to it on a regular basis. 
not the least being those salad days of mine working in restaurants part-time while climbing the showbiz ladder. The people behind the scenes in many SoCal restaurants were at times entirely Hispanic, and I always found it a warm and welcoming environment. Well, that's what this movie is, warm and welcoming. We follow a young Jose as his family travels from one picking job to the other in Central California, as Jose tries to eke out an education, bouncing from town to town, and all the time he has his eyes on the stars. This is not a Pollyanna-style bio, all bright and shining, nor is it a gritty, I'll-do-anything-I-can-to-survive slog. It's a story about a determined and brilliant young man, and later, along with his wife, who is determined to keep trying, regardless of the rejections or the obstacles. Ms. Abea, the director, has a sure and sensitive hand here, guiding the story from cornfields all the way to outer space, from the ground up quite literally. Meanwhile, Michael Pena is spot-on as the older Jose, always believable, never pitiable, but that's true for every Michael Pena performance. He's always working, and this performance is a perfect example of why. And Rosa Salazar as Adela, she's always working too. The reason being is she's fantastic. Lit from within would be one way to describe her. I'm her new number one fan, can you tell? When her husband-to-be tells her of his dreams of space travel, she can't help but laugh. A migrant farm kid in outer space? But as the story progresses and Jose starts to overcome one obstacle after another, we see the love grow in Adela's eyes until she's a true believer. This is a very family-friendly film, and were circumstances different in the theatrical release world right now, I would expect the word of mouth on this feel-good experience to pack the movie houses. The whole thing made me homesick, as it were, for the many interactions I had with my California friends. A very big thumbs up. Well, that's it. A grateful thanks to the delightful Amy Carlson. Another grateful thanks to the wonderful people here at WOMR and WFMR. The whole purpose of this open-hearted nonprofit station is to entertain, enlighten, and serve our community. And since we stream online now, That community is the world. A word of appreciation to Mr. Dunn, too, my talented engineer. And to my wife, Lynn, for joining me in viewing these fine films. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining me today. This is Harry Kaysen, The Movie Night. Goodbye, and good movies.